The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. This is Sarah with Birth Circle, and today I have a super rare opportunity to um, have another discussion with one of our past guests. So Bailey and I, Bailey Gaddis and I had an amazing discussion last year about her book, Feng Shui Mommy, and what it means to be feng shui. And if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and search it because it's really, really fun, light, but it gives a lot of great insight into how to prepare your birth space and your home space for transitioning into motherhood as gracefully as possible. You know, I say that with, you know, quotes, gracefully, <laughs> never really graceful, but the feng shui, the whole principle of feng shui is to keep balance. And so that it, she just has some amazing insights. So today we get to talk about her brand new book, which is called asking for a pregnant friend. And we touched a little bit. It was in the works last time we podcasted. So this time we get to go deep, deep, deep. I'm super excited, but the, uh, the cover also says, says 101 answers to questions women are too embarrassed to ask about pregnancy, childbirth, and motherhood. So not only do you get to read this later in print, but you get to hear our (laughs) giggles and ours. (laughs) Just kidding. We're totally not embarrassed about any of these things because we are so empowered and we've talked about all the boobs and vaginas possible. (laughs) Actually, what I love about this discussion, the first time we had it, is there are things that Bailey pointed out that we don't even recognize in our culture that we have stigmatized. And so that they have like this coloring, this overlay of them. So, okay. Thank you for being back here, Bailey. I'm super excited. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Okay. So let's just launch right in. You've got 101. We've got, you know. Yeah. I mean, you have four hours. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get started. (laughs) First of all, um, what, what made you decide to do this book? Yeah, you know, um, it was a combination of my own experience, you know, being pregnant, being a new mom and having all sorts of questions that, you know, of course I would Google, but a lot of times when I would Google these questions, it was either like really watered down information that I would find. They didn't like really answer my question or forums with women discussing it. And sadly, a lot of times the woman that asked the question was shamed and there was a lot of judgment. Um, So it just made me feel even more shame about these questions. And I just kind of like pushed it all aside. And then when I started teaching childbirth preparation, when I became a birth doula, I would have women that would kind of like pull me aside after class and would whisper some of these questions that, that I had had, that I was so embarrassed about. And so it helped me realize, okay, I'm not the only one. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of women that are also asking these questions, um, but are also, or they have these questions, but they're afraid to ask them. And, and, and it's really interesting because I'm actually um, pregnant again right now. And, uh, you know, and I feel now that I've acknowledged, you know, all the questions I've had, I've looked into them. I feel so much lighter this time. Anyways, that's kind of an aside, but um, so, yeah, I really was hoping to bring that to other women, you know, reducing that shame or hopefully even eliminating it 
and just helping us have a more open, enjoyable experience, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So we're going to dive right in. So let's, let's tackle one of the most, uh, controversial, maybe embarrassing, um, questions. What uh, we've heard the term orgasmic birth, but what does orgasm during pregnancy and birth actually mean that can you orgasm? Can you, I'm I'm of course just asking for a friend. So Uh, yeah, right. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) So to me, um, this can mean two different things. So the really traditional, um, you know, interpretation of an orgasmic birth is a woman actually having orgasms during contractions when she's birthing. And this is a thing. Um, it happens to a pretty small amount of, of women. Um, part of it is somewhat genetic, you know, how genetically predisposed we are to easily orgasm. Those lucky women, I think it's like 0.5% of us. Yeah, I know. It's like, they're so lucky. Um, and, and I've had some women that have had that experience and, and they're like, yeah, you know, I feel like the whole genetic part is, is part of it, but these women also really put in a lot of preparation, um, and, and did certain things during their birth. And this is kind of a taboo thing to say, but even masturbated during birth to help themselves have that orgasm and, and shift from that space of, of pain to pleasure. So yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't seem like you could have an orgasm if you're in fear and pain, obviously. Yeah, so, so exactly. So they had to do a lot of work to get out of that space of fear. Um, a lot of these women do a lot of work to shift their perceptions about, you know, sexuality, childbirth and motherhood, because a lot of times we think, and this is funny, because of course, you know, unless we're doing IVF or, you know, um, using fertility care, you have sex to get pregnant. Uh, But then when we're birthing and then we're mothers- Wait, that should have been the first embarrassing question. I know when we got pregnant, the first thing we got that pregnancy test, my husband wasn't like, oh, I can't wait to be a dad. He goes, oh no, now your parents are going to know we did it. And I'm like, uh- (laughs) Yeah, there you go. There's that first embarrassing question. Well, and it's so true. You know, it's like the the minute we like pee on that stick, it's like there's the shift happens with like, oh, my sexual side over here and like motherhood over here. But I mean, of course they're intertwined. Right. You know, and so these women that have this orgasmic birth, a lot of times they put in a lot of work to um, help to like meld the two in a really healthy way to realize that I you know, I was really in my, you know, sexual self, my sexual being when I became pregnant. And it just makes sense to kind of tap back into that more sensual side of me um, during birth. And a lot of women that have the orgasm, they talk about kind of reaching this, this choice where they can either tip into pain or pleasure. And they use, you know, certain breathing techniques, masturbation to help themselves tip into pleasure. Um, But this brings me to my other interpretation of it, because women can do all of the things, you know, all of the things I list in the book, but it's just, they just can't get to that space of orgasm. Um, And I think that that's fine. I think you can still have an orgasmic birth without the orgasm, meaning that you can have these feelings of of ecstasy, of relief, Mm -hmm. of, of joy, of overwhelming joy during birth without having the orgasm. The actual. So, okay. You know, so I have a question. Um, yeah. So I experienced the, eje- the fetal ejection reflex with my last baby, which 
is basically like sneezing your baby out. Like you cannot hold it back. The baby shoots out of you. Just, yeah. just a, a reflex that you can't yeah. stop it. The midwife saying, slow down, you slow down. And you like, can't, it's a response. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And that actually felt weirdly good, like a sneeze, but it was definitely not an orgasm. So like, yeah. how do you know if it's an orgasm or if it's just feeling good or like what, you know, yeah, you know, that's a good question. Um, and, and of course, you know, we can interpret it any way we want, but typically with an orgasm, you're feeling these like pulsations of, of blood down to the vagina. Um, the, the clitoris becomes a bit swollen, you know, during an orgasm during birth. I mean, it's pretty much the same. It's going to be the orgasm. same. Okay. It's, it's going to be the same. Yeah. And a lot of times it is kind of like a rolling orgasm because your uterus is continuing to surge. And so it kind of carries on the <laughs> orgasm. I mean, that sounds like you could have some pretty great ones then, huh? It's amazing. What, what is the video? Um, it's called birth as we know it on YouTube and there's an orgasmic birth in it. And this, I mean, it's amazing to watch. It's about the middle of the documentary and the woman, her eyes are like rolling back in her head and she's just like laughing. It's, I think it's very inspirational to watch <laughs> because you're like, there it is. Like, inspirational or disturbing. I mean, if you don't know what you're looking at, that could be kind of worrisome, but. <laughs> right, but yeah, then she describes it and it's so beautiful. You know, she talks about, feeling this like surge of energy spiraling, you know, through her and really channeling it. So yeah, you know, it's, it's totally possible um, to have the orgasm, but again, it's small, you know, bit of women, but all of us, you know, regardless of how genetically predisposed we are to easily orgasm, we all have access to that orgasmic experience. Got it. And that overwhelming joy. Okay. So one more question on this field and then I'll move on to another uncomfortable topic. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, <laughs> what about arousal during breastfeeding? Yeah. So this one um, for a lot of women is one of the biggest producers of shame um, because, you know, when we're birthing, we don't have the baby yet. So we're still a little bit you know, more comfortable connecting with our sexuality. But when we are holding our baby and we are feeding our baby and our culture tells us that our breasts are this like sexual, you know, part of our body. And of course, breasts have been over-sexualized in our culture. Mm-hmm. When a woman feels aroused during breastfeeding, a lot of thoughts can go through her head. Like I'm sick. There's something wrong with me for having- And what does arousal mean? Like, does she feel attraction for her baby or for her partner or just generally attracted to the couch? I mean, what is- (laughs) Yeah, so it's really um, like a biological feeling, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's more about maybe even feeling like more blood going down to the vagina, some some pulsations in the vagina. Some women can actually orgasm during breastfeeding. This usually happens if their legs are crossed. And so there's like some clitoral stimulation. And and the thing with breastfeeding, it releases oxytocin, right? You know, so an oxytocin during, during, you know, Hmm. so it's really this biological process in the body that's happening. It's not your mind getting attracted, like sexually attracted to your baby or anything like that. It is really just the body having a reaction to this release of oxytocin to okay, have all right. nipples stimulated, you know? So the, these women that experience this, it's not at all about sexual attraction to, to anybody. It's just what's happening in their body. Okay. And, interesting. You know, realize that we can take away the shame. All right. So I want to go then the other side of the spectrum, because I've heard some women um, say when they breastfeed, they get very, very angry and they get 
very like their body then goes into that anger, anxiety reflex while they're breastfeeding. And they, they also feel shame about that because they are supposed to be loving this little baby, but every time they nurse, they just get angry. Have you heard of that? I have with, with some women. Yeah. And, and I was talking to a midwife about it and she had, you know, some interesting insights. She was saying, you know, one thing, and it's especially with women that already have other children, we're just like overtouched. You know, we feel like, we have too much touch. And then when you're breastfeeding, it's so much touch, right? You know, an intimate part of your body that is being <laughs> heavily utilized and it can, that can trigger irritation. Like, God, like I, you know, I, my body is just, just over it. Um, you know, with it, it's a big sense, sense of responsibility, right? You know, it's like, God, I'm one of the primary sources of nutrients for this baby. And, and it doesn't mean we don't, continue to do it or we don't want to, but it, that can trigger frustration mm -hmm. too. You know, like there's, there's, I have so much responsibility on my shoulders. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of, you know, emotional things that can come up during breastfeeding that can understandably cause irritation or even anger, you know, and it awesome. Yeah. I heard that. And I, I never, go, I liked that midwives. Yeah. But it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's just, again, your body reacting to stimulus and something's going on. So yeah. find somebody you trust and talk to them about it. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So another um, uncomfortable subject would be the just what happens during pregnancy, sexuality, and but also in a relationship. What if a, a partner strays during pregnancy? Yeah. So I, I was shocked, actually, when I was doing the research for this book that um, it, it's actually more common than I had realized. Oh gosh, that's yucky. <laughs> Isn't it sad? Yeah, I know. And, and I make sure to note in the book, it's like, look, you're not a statistic, you know, just because, you know, X amount of, of mint. Well, and actually this is interesting. Um, the, the study that was done was about, you know, heterosexual couples, but they, other studies actually found that, um, same-sex couples that actually it's like a pretty similar um, rate of infidelity during pregnancy with same-sex partners as well. Um, and the, the reasoning, or at least the believed reasoning, of course, nobody knows exactly why an mm -hmm. individual strays is that there could be a couple different reasons. Um, so one that they researched is that a lot of women when they're pregnant, you know, especially in the first trimester, you, you don't feel like having sex, you know, you, and this is not all women, but it's very normal to feel like I'm, I'm just, I can't go there right now. You, maybe you feel sick, you know, just physically, you're not feeling mm -hmm. great. And so this partner is starting to feel like, well, if I can't get it from you, I'm going to go somewhere else, which of course, signifies all sorts of other issues. Um, and then emotionally as well, you know, it's not just about the, the physical component, but a lot of times pregnant women, understandably, we have a lot going on emotionally <laughs> and you don't have a lot of space, you know, to offer your so partner, true. you know, sympathy for what's going on at work. Or, I mean, you just don't have as much patience for helping them through their own emotional stress. And so sometimes that can lead the partner to go find that emotional comfort somewhere else, which can sometimes lead to, to a physical relationship. Um, so those were the two key reasons pinpointed for you know, causes of strain during pregnancy. Um, and, and then again, sometimes women just have that fear and they just have insecurity come up even when the partner is not at all, you know, having a desire to stray. And, and of course that signifies, like, like I felt that honestly with my first 
pregnancy with my husband, I had this huge fear come up and, um, and it was really, really stressful for me for a couple of months until I finally talked to him about it, <laughs> you know, and I told him, it's like, look, you haven't done anything to make me feel this way, but I just have this fear coming up. And, um, through communication, we worked through it, which is of course, you know, what I, one of the main things I recommend is talking, talking about it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. This is one of the best ways through. Yeah. Just talking, talking about it. Yeah. Okay. So, um, on the same lines, you know, you already mentioned that women don't feel, sometimes they don't feel in the mood to have sex during various parts of their pregnancy, but what are some of the ways, like, so what are some of the questions you hear about sexuality during pregnancy that you just want to just dispel? Well, like one, <laughs> if I have intercourse, will he hit the baby's head, you know, like stuff like that. Tell me yeah. all of the little, yeah. the, <laughs> So that's a big one. Is that concern about the baby? Like, does the baby know what we're doing? Like, um, men, especially like, will it see yes. me? Oh yeah. God, like, just, like what, what's the baby thinking? Um, and so the number one thing I say is the baby has no idea and does zero care <laughs> what's going on. There is no chance of the penis going into the uterus. Like the baby is fully protected. Um, of course, like with certain special circumstances, uh, your care provider will tell you not to have sex, but that that's pretty rare. Mm -hmm. Usually people are totally clear to have sex till the very end. Um, and even when the baby is far enough along to be able to hear what's going on outside of the womb, they like, even if you're talking dirty talk, the baby has, they have no, yeah, they just, yeah. they're just happy to hear your voice. Exactly. They <laughs> Yeah. And actually the, the orgasm is soothing for the baby because you're having these light, you know, oh, yeah. surges through the, the uterus, your body's releasing you endorphins, oxytocin. So the baby feels great. You know? <laughs> yeah. And oh they have no idea. They have no idea. It's so, so funny. Parents, parents can rest, rest assured that, yeah, you're not going to scar your baby by. by and are you going to make yourself go into labor? Or are you going to do anything to endanger the pregnancy by having sex in late trimester? Um, you, under most circumstances, you're not. And, and if a woman has a special circumstance, like an insufficient cervix, for example, like a cervix that's dilating early, typically you are going to know about those circumstances fairly early on and your care provider, any, any good care provider will clearly let you know you cannot have sex. You are not cleared to have sex. Um, it, it is not going to put you into early labor if you're having a healthy pregnancy. Um, and actually, you know, once you reach your, your due date, um, or even before the prostaglandins in semen can actually help to soften the cervix. So again, it's, it's not going to make the cervix start to dilate early, but it's just going to just like eating dates throughout the pregnancy. It just helps to prepare and soften the cervix to open. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it all can really help you actually have an easier labor. Got it. Okay. So um, I've been at births where the midwife says, okay, nothing's really happening here. Everybody's leaving the room. You guys, um, you know, make some love. And, uh, what are the midwives then really doing that? Why are they asking the couple to do that? 
Yeah. Um, so a couple reasons. So one is that a lot of times during sex, nipple stimulation happens and nipple stimulation is one of the best ways to get, get the surges, the contractions going again, because it releases a lot of oxytocin. Again, just like with breastfeeding, that nipple stimulation releases the oxytocin. Um, and then again, with the prostaglandins in the semen, if the man is able to ejaculate, that helps to soften the cervix and make it more susceptible to, to opening. And then it just a lot of times helps to relax the mind. Yeah. Yeah. You take know? her, take your mind off the. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And distract her and then connect her with her partner and, and feel that love. And, and for a moment, just disconnect from any stress of, oh, I'm not dilating. This isn't happening. That's not happening to just settling into the present moment, you know, reconnecting with those feelings of, of love and connection. Um, and a lot of times that, that stress relief combined with, you know, the hormones and whatnot, mm -hmm. um, can help us get back into a, um, a good pattern with, with labor. Perfect. Okay. So I wanted to ask, um, some questions about post-birth. So yeah. postpartum. So, um, I've heard that, uh, some men don't want to have sex for a while after the baby's born. And mm -hmm. so not only the mom, but like what? You know, I mean, what happens if your partner was all excited and now he doesn't want to do that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> What's causing yeah. that? Yeah. So one, one potential cause of that is when a man becomes a father, sometimes his testosterone levels um, decrease a little bit, which actually helps him you know, feel more maternal towards the baby and have more of that connection. So the hormones can, can shift his libido and impact how much he wants to have sex. Um, and then for some men, when they see their partner go through the process of labor and they see her become a mother, sometimes again, with going back to that, um, not being able to reconcile our sexual selves with our parent, with parenthood, it can be difficult for men to again see their partner um, in that sexual likes it's like well now you're the mother to my child and uh, but then if I have sex with you I'm having sex with the mother of my child and so they can kind of get in there in their head and then women can have the same thing it's like well now I'm a mother how do I you know reconnect with my sexual self so a lot of times again talking and kind of working yeah, through it and mm -hmm. continuing to to have sex um even if at first it feels a little awkward can usually help couples get through mm -hmm. that block um but yeah that can be really common for for men again and women to not be interested in, in sex for a while. I know a lot of yeah. women feel um, shame about not being able to have sex the same way. I mean, especially if they tear and they've had a repair, then sex will feel different. And mm -hmm. sometimes they don't want it or it hurts. And then the partner feels bad or the, the, you know, the woman's like, I, it, you know, it just changes all sorts of dynamics. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, what I usually recommend for, for women that, that are feeling like, like physically, it just doesn't feel the same, um, is to have a conversation with their partner and let them know that I really need to, to lead the way in the beginning. I need to try out different positions. You know, maybe you're doing oral sex, you know, but to really like sometimes with our breasts, if the man touches the breast, it actually is a turnoff. I'm like, you know, no so, touchy, not yours. <laughs> yeah. Like these are off limits, man. Um, but yeah, to really encourage the woman to, to take charge 
charge and, and be really clear about what does and doesn't feel good to her. And, and then a lot of times it leads couples to finding a new way to have sex. You know, Mm -hmm. it might not look like what it used to, but they can find a new way that feels good for the woman because, um, yeah, when a baby comes out, if you tear, your vagina is going to feel different, different positions, are going to feel better than others. So you just kind of have to do some trial and error and um, be really clear with your partner about what, what feels good. Perfect. Okay. So let's talk about, um, I think, well, is there anything else sexuality wise that we didn't cover? I feel like we went pretty darn deep. Yeah. I mean, those are like the main points that I usually hit with women with that concern. Okay. Let's go into some mind space things, some mind space questions. Like um, what if a woman finds out the sex of her baby and she's just really crushed. She's really disappointed about that. And then she feels like, you know, she shouldn't deserve this child or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So my first experience with this question is when it happened to me, Oh, (laughs) I I thought my son was supposed to be a girl and the 20 week anatomy scan, they're like, there's a penis. And I, um, I had a total breakdown. I actually, he also was thinking it was a girl and had, and had just gotten used to that idea. Um, he hid his disappointment better than I did, but I had about a, like a two day period where I felt like I was in mourning Aww. for this, this girl that I thought I was supposed to have. And, and of course, you know, um, now that I have my son, I wouldn't want anybody else, but, um, yeah. So what, looking back on that experience and supporting other women through this, this phenomenon, um, helped me realize a few things. So you know, number one, of course, just because we learned the sex of the baby doesn't mean we know the gender, right? Mm-hmm. So just because the, the sex is, is um, you know, male anatomy doesn't mean that that boy will identify as a boy. It doesn't mean he'll like the typical boy activities. And then for me, what helped is I started to look at okay, well, are there like any experiences with a son or like with a daughter that I can't have with a son? And it's like really with the extension of supporting a woman through her period and like birth. And then with a boy kind of learning about his penis, it's like everything else. I I can have the same experience. Yeah, it's true. Cause in in our culture, we don't, we don't prefer a certain gender. I mean, it would be, it would be hard if you're in a culture where, um, females are not as valued as males and that's rough but in the American culture it's the same so but but it is like dressing up in ribbons and bows I know I had two boys first and then I had a girl and I was like well I this is dumb because I don't have anything pink and I don't like sparkles and so we're just going you know it's fine it's nature over nurture I mean nurture over nature I'm just I'm just not going to expose this child to anything pink because I can't stand hair bows and whatever no no, no. The minute the thing could find a fuchsia thing, the fuchsia thing was on the thing. And she was all about sparkles and she wanted feathers on her pencils when she was 18 months and she wanted all of the glitter. And then her sister that came after that was even worse. And I was like, oh, well, but it, it did. It kind of like, I just realized that boys are, they they were equally fun. Like, I, okay. Yeah. I got to teach my boys how to pee on trees and like aim at Cheerios in the toilet, but my girls were really fun when they wanted plumes on their pencils at one and a half. So yeah. it's like, everything was fun. I, I didn't know. Yeah. I wasn't super disappointed. So I can't relate. Like you said you did, but yeah. in hindsight, I'm like, if I had that problem, I, I would just want to wrap my hands around my arms around me and say, it's going to be okay. They're going to be funny and I know. adorable no matter what. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. And then realizing you're, you're, you're having the unique little person that you're meant to have. And that's yeah. really helped me too. It's like, okay, this is the child I meant to have. And of course, I mean, I adore him. And it's like, once you have the child, the, this, and I've heard this from every woman that had that disappointment. They're like, once that baby was in my arms, I could care less. Yeah, exactly. It does not matter. It doesn't matter. Just, it doesn't matter. Yep. But, um, mm-hmm. but for women to realize that having that initial disappointment, if they do, that's okay. A lot of women feel that a lot, a lot of people get a certain sex in their mind, like, okay, this is what I'm going to have. And this is what's going to happen. And then if that idea is, is burst, um, it's okay to be disappointed. And, and then sadly that disappointment can turn into shame. Like, oh, I should just be grateful. And then you beat yourself up, but just let yourself be disappointed. Mm-hmm. And then no, usually even just after a couple of days, then you start to get used to the idea of mm-hmm. whatever the, the sex is and you move on and then you have your baby. And again, you, you don't care if it's a male or female. And I know like if you're worried, you know, like say you had a boy first, you wanted another boy, brother, you know, you wanted two brothers or two girls and then you have the mix and you're like, oh, they're not going to play together. And then, yeah, no, they will. They'll drool on each other. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. Totally. They'll fight. They can fight efficiently no matter what yeah. gender <laughs> exactly. they are or identify as. <laughs> they have a penis or vagina. They can still it's go at it. Equally opportunity fighting. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Oh, um, so what about the, the thoughts that go through a mom's head sometimes when she's pregnant with her second worrying that she won't love this next baby as much? Yeah, I'm, I'm going through that right now. Oh, are you, it's your second you're pregnant with? Yeah, I'm pregnant with my second. Oh, so maybe um, I should uh, just tell you what to think about this. Yeah, I know. Right. Like what, what wisdom do you have for me? Um, yeah, you know, what, what I have been, and my son, he's really concerned. He's like, are you guys going to love me less? How old is your um, son? He's, he's almost eight. Okay. So he's completely, yeah. He's, I had my baby so fast. They didn't know who was coming. They had no they, idea their world right. was going to be rocked. Yeah. 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 He's <laughs> very, he's very, very aware. And it's funny because I was eight when my little brother was born. So I remember, you know, the, the feelings, um, and you know, I think when, I mean, this might sound like cheesy, but I totally believe that like your heart just expands and it's not like we have this, like this limit on the amount of love Mm -hmm. that we're able to give. You know, I truly believe that again, your heart expands as your family expands. Um, and of course the amount of time you have does not expand sadly. (laughs) So I'm sure that will be, you know, something that I, that I navigate, but, um, and, and I think too, something that I've been thinking of it, because I don't know this child, I mean, it still seems a little bit inconceivable that there'll be like some new person. Yep. Yep. That is a little weird. Yep. Like, but can you remember your life before your husband? Like you sort of, but you're like, could I have even have dreamed of him? And now he's like real. Yeah. Yeah. But you're, you are spot on. I will just say. So now that I can come from an old crone. Tell me your wisdom. It did surprise, (laughs) it shocked me with my second baby because I had so many worries. And of course I didn't want to voice that. I was so, you know, I didn't want to be ungrateful for what I had or I didn't want, but I was so worried. And yeah, when my second son was born, it's like the weird thing about love is it's not quantifiable. Like it, I mean, you can love somebody and you love that person to the maximum that you can love that one person. But then when some, that second baby comes, you all of a sudden have the same amount of love for that next baby as you do for the first one. So it's not like you have double love. It doesn't work that way. It's like that one person, that new baby gets their own version of your complete love. 
And it's just, and it happened four times. It was weird. I mean, (laughs) yeah, well, that's very encouraging to hear. It's it's just, it's really neat. And I think it's the same for the siblings too, is they welcome their siblings in. They just, you know, they had more room in their heart. That's that's what we told our son this morning, actually. You know, it's like, you're going to have more love in your life too. You're going to have this sister that loves you and you're going to love her. I mean, there's just going to be more more love all around. And, and I think that helped him feel yeah. a little bit better. Yeah. yeah. And the second babies, I mean, I, my first was two years after or two years, they're all two years apart. And I yeah. really bad at math. Um, <laughs> I was like, let's wait less time. And then they kept coming. But um, I know that, that with your eight-year-old, he'll probably be pretty helpful. You know, he'll probably be like, Hey, go get mommy that, you know, nursing pad as you're squirting all over the place. Hey, go grab, grab that diaper as you're, or grab the wipes. I forgot the the thing. So there are some perks about having children, other children around. Yeah, no, I agree. And he loves, he loves babies. He's very nurturing. And so I think not, not that there won't be hiccups, but yeah. I think that it'll be, yeah, really, really yeah. beautiful experience. But he's over the phase where he'll smack him in the car with a or smack him in the face with the car. So yeah, yeah. right. Let, let's hope so. <laughs> let's hope so. I mean, then that indicates other problems. <laughs> well, right. I know. Then we have a whole other load of issues, but yeah, yeah. No, I'm, so I'm some, sure that. What are some of the other mind games that, that pregnant and postpartum women will play in their heads that, that um, are shrouded in shame? Yeah. Um, well, you know, this is a little bit in the same vein of what we've been talking about. I've had a lot of women tell me, you know, after I had my first child, like, of course, again, like we were saying, I love all my children equally, but now like my older child kind of like irritates me more. Like, I feel like again, while I love them equally, I actually like, like the baby more than the older one or, you know, and they feel so much shame around that. Like, yeah, yeah. So guilty. No, I actually tell my child, which ones they're my favorite at that moment. (laughs) I love that. I just make sure I'm doing the math, but I'm like, oh, you cleaned your room. You are totally my favorite third child today. Thank you so much for being my favorite third child. I'm your only third child, mom. I know, but you are my favorite. That's so funny. Because I mean, and it's natural, like even with like adults in our life, we go through seasons with humans, Mm -hmm. right? Like Mm -hmm. for a while, our brother might just like really be pissing us off for a couple of months and then he's our favorite person again with our mothers you know it's like we love them one minute they're irritating us the next I mean our our like likes and dislikes with different people again how much they're irritating us it just changes and I think it all comes back to communication and we're different than our parents and our grandparents for sure and how much we talk to our children I know I talk to my children as adults um, my parents they treated me with respect and my dad especially would talk to me like an adult, but he was still always a parent in my mind. And just the comments my kids make to me, make me realize I, they see me differently than I saw my parents. Like my parents could do no wrong. They were the gods of my world. Right. And my kids definitely let me know that that's not the case for them. But I just, I, I love having these honest conversations because if we can laugh about things, like one of the jokes now is the little one still smells good. um, (laughs) And the other ones smell pubescent, you know? And so like their brother first, you know, their older brother, I noticed, I was like, oh man, 11 year olds smell differently than 10 year olds. And anyway, as it, so now I only have one, one left and, and I'll snuggle with all like, thank you for smelling so good. And the 11 will be like, I still smell good. I'm like, well, see, it's, so <laughs> it's not different. And anyway, but we can laugh about it. And then when they have concerns, like when they have, I mean, if you can, if you can joke about, but, but they still know they're loved. I just, 
I'm not going to nuzzle my nose in their scalp. You know, I have no, to have right, exactly. it's, freshly yeah. bathed right now. I, I mean, I, I think it's a dumb example, but I think having living through intense dysfunction and then finding a level of beautiful function and balance. Yeah. I know the difference and the difference is communication and being honest with your kids and being sensitive to their, um, you know, their worries and stuff, but being able to right. joke about some of these like real life things. Totally. Yeah. Right. To bring some levity, which is such a great lesson for life. Right? Oh, like I have an example the other way. So I had a child, um, I had a one child misbehaving and their younger sibling took me aside and said, is that what happens when you become a teenager? Cause if that's the case, I don't want to do that to you, mom. I love you, mom. Oh. So there's like that side of the, you smell and you don't smell kind of like, so oh, that open conversation, I'm like, yeah, you probably will be a little stink because most teenagers are, but I really appreciate that you see it because if you can see it, then you can make choices about it. And if you're being a stink, I can remind you when you're 13 and you'll know what you're talking about. And they're like, yeah, mom, you're probably right. So those types of, oh man, can you imagine like, I, the first, it was, it's my third child. That's really um, insightful like this. So I didn't get the yeah. opportunity with the first two, but yeah. she's just, she just notices things. And I'm like, this gives you so much power and control over your own destiny and your own Absolutely. noticing. Anyway. Wow. That was a tangent. I don't know where we started, but I, but yeah, just don't feel so ashamed in, in um, what you can and can't talk to your kids about. Exactly. Yeah. Right. All comes back to that communication. Yeah. Absolutely. So what is anything else that comes to mind with your mindset? Yeah. Yeah. Something else that came to mind, um, you know, on a much more serious level is uh, the like intrusive thoughts that some moms Ooh, yeah. can have, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and having these thoughts, like, for example, when bathing your child, like, oh my God, if I just held them under the water, they could die or like having a vision of like a car accident or having these really, really intense, um, scary thoughts about the baby. And, and a lot of women do not talk about these because they think if I tell my care provider that I'm having these thoughts mm -hmm. they are going to report me mm -hmm. and it's just going to be, you know, this whole horrible thing. Um, and so something really important, you know, I, and I go deep into this in the book is for mm -hmm. women to realize, um, so, so thoughts like that can a lot of times come from postpartum, you know, anxiety, postpartum OCD, mm -hmm. postpartum depression, things that are very, very, very common. Almost all women have some intrusive thoughts, especially in early motherhood. Um, when it's dangerous, and this is very rare, is when it goes into postpartum psychosis. And the difference is you don't recognize that the thoughts are quote unquote, like wrong or scary, you know? So it's so important for women to realize if you recognize that like, oh, I don't like this thought, this isn't good. You're going to be okay. You are right? the first person, even when I have interviewed psychologists, <laughs> you're the first person to say it so succinctly and correctly. Yes. When you, you, your line blurs between reality and un, un and non-reality, yeah. that is when it's dangerous. And so you would never drive your van into an ocean. You would never drown your five babies in the bathtub. If yeah. you would, you're, you're not probably not listening to this podcast and well, right. you don't even know that you're really doing it, that, it, that it's wrong at all. So there's yeah. that distinction. And I want to say, cause I feel very strongly about this topic, about intrusive thoughts. Yeah. I experienced them. First yeah. of all, I would say, do be careful on who you tell, but first of all, 
I hear you, (laughs) this podcast, if you have had intrusive thoughts, both during pregnancy and afterwards, I hear you. So there's one person in this world, at least that you can trust. You can email email me. My email is media at birthcircle.com. You can email me. Do be careful who you say, talk to. Um, If it's not a very trusted professional or very trusted family friend, um, Mm -hmm. then yeah, it it can backfire. And I've heard horrible stories, but don't let those deter you from getting the help you need. So that's the second thing. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, what you said about knowing the difference. Um, and the, the other thing that I had a friend um, after I'd recovered and, and, you know, healed, done a lot of healing, she mentioned she's a midwife. She said, you're not responsible for the first thought that comes into your mind. So those those intrusive thoughts, you have no control over them and you are not responsible for them. Mm-hmm. The second thought, you do have more control. So if the first thought is, I should put my baby, like all the things you're saying, they're not triggering to me, but they, oh, oh this right on. I could still be triggered if you kept going, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but the second thought is, no, I won't do that. Or the, sec- or the second thought could be, all right, brain, you want to go there with me? Let's think through this logically. What would happen? Awful things would happen. I wouldn't want to do it. That's, that's so interesting that you would make me think that, but I'm not going to do it. And then like, let it go, right? Yeah. You're, Okay. So box, yeah. box done. I just, there's sh- this shame. It just makes me crazy to, when I hear women just like stuffing these thoughts. Cause I did the same thing. Cause I didn't know that yeah. it wasn't not normal. Wait, yeah. I didn't know that it was normal. Yeah. Yeah. And typically I was, um, I had two friends that are psychologists that, that helped me a lot with the book and one does specialize, you know, in postpartum health. And she's like, those are typically like even more than your medical care provider to find, you know, a mental health specialist that specializes in postpartum care because they're the ones that know this research tip. I mean, typically, Mm -hmm. hopefully Mm -hmm. um, they're the ones that understand the difference, you know, Mm -hmm. and can really, um, yeah, provide like beautiful support, like your friend. And Uh, knowing that you have something going on, that's half the battle. I know I feel like most of my postpartum OCD, like I didn't have it at all with the fourth. And I think a big part of that is first of all, more support and, right. and understanding, but also yeah. just knowing that I was susceptible to it. So when those thoughts came, I mean, you've got, um, was a neuroplasticity. So the more thoughts that come through, you're like creating, you know, highways of information on your brain. Yeah. So just not entertaining those thoughts by the, the end, just knowing yeah. that they existed, but I didn't have to think about them anymore. That right. helped a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great, yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, uh, yeah, uh, I, I thought of something else, but it's gone. So let's keep going. All right. Anything else about the mindset? Oh my gosh. Um, I'm, oh yeah. Sorry. I've talked about pregnancy brain. I'm like, like, just like, I'm like, oh, I had a thought a millisecond ago yeah. already gone. Raise um, your hand. I'll I, tell you what your name is. Oh, yeah. Oh. Like, uh, well, actually. Okay. So go like, I, um, one thing that, you know, I support a lot of women through is, uh, fear, fear of dying during childbirth. And I get a lot Ooh. of women that, that really have that, that come up big. And a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times that is somewhat coupled with, um, you know, a fear of the hospital. And this is women that are like, I, I don't want to have a home birth, but I don't feel comfortable in the hospital. So that's an aspect of it is, is setting that's, that's triggering them. But then also these, these deep seated fears about, um, about death, you know, during, during childbirth. Um, and of course, sadly, you know, you look at the statistics of, um, 
you know, black women in the United States mm -hmm. and how course they do have a higher likelihood of death and so it it still is a, a very real issue that you know we need to tackle in this country um but you know looking at our chances of dying versus like back in the early 1900s compared to now i mean it is so we're we're so safe or most women are so safe during the process um and and that's a very um you know can be a very complex issue and i you know support a lot of women with it through number one if it's a very very severe fear of course you know um helping them find um a mental health specialist who specializes in, in prenatal health and you know all of the the things that come up during pregnancy and then then we do a lot of unpacking of the fear and it's different for every woman you know trying to find source yeah. or sources like where is it coming from you know where what what caused that and, and sadly a lot of times it's just our culture in general you know you think about all the images we see of birth it's like mm -hmm. oh my god that's terrifying and a lot of yeah. negative fearful um messages but that's a, a big one and sometimes it's not even like a fear of death but just a really big fear of what's going to happen fear of the unknown yeah. right yeah maybe it just boils down to that yeah yeah, but not to be ashamed if you have those feelings, but to to tell yeah. someone about it. Yeah, and it's it's not necessarily a premonition. It's not a premonition for ninety exactly. percent. That's such a great point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Realizing that just yeah. So um, this whole thing you've we've talked a, a lot about shame today. If left in a shame mentality, how does it affect a woman's journey into her new motherhood? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times it makes us kind of close in on ourselves. Mm. It makes us start to feel because like the more we hold stuff in, um, the more we feel like we have to hold stuff in, you know, it's like if I let anything out now, it's all just going to come out. So I just have to like totally zip it up. And and sadly, it can it can trigger or intensify, you know, postpartum depression, anxiety, OCD it can exaggerate that Um, it. It can make us doubt, you know, our, our instincts, our mm -hmm. abilities as mothers, um, and, and, you know, and a lot of times, and I'm kind of I'm speaking from my own experience, you know, I tricked myself into thinking, well, I, they're just like these little questions and stuff like that. It's not that big of a deal. I shouldn't. I shouldn't worry about it when really looking back, it's like, oh God, this caused so much shame. Mm -hmm. And my confidence level in mothering plummeted because I didn't feel safe confidence. to share yeah, yeah, or explore what I was wondering or what I was experiencing. I, um, yeah, I didn't feel safe to be open. So I think it can mm -hmm. cause all sorts of issues, but um, yeah, it can- But when you were saying you know, that, that you change, yeah, that you, it changes how you, mother um i don't know something you said just made me think how was your relationship with your mother are there things that your mom said to you that shamed that made you feel like these should be shameful things and can we stop that or can we go backwards and say hey mom when you say i mean what do we do because i think a lot of our shame is inherited right yeah well and it's so interesting because i i got so lucky because my mom is like so open and she she didn't, I mean, I'm sure there's like some, some things like we're from the South, like from Texas. So there's some things we all inherited about like sleep it under the rug, you know? And so, and I got so lucky because by the time I was born, like she was actively 
trying to to change that and was more aware mm. um but but yeah you know just that culture in general you know like especially down there it's like oh nope i'm fine you're fine everything's fine uh so that's that was part of it yeah and i and i've actually talked to my mom about that just in general you know it's like how our family handles different situations like nope nope everybody's fine don't worry about it don't talk about yeah. it um so yeah absolutely your family of origin can deeply impact how comfortable you feel talking yeah. about all this stuff. And, and strangely, like sex, that was the one thing that wasn't a big issue for me because that was one thing my mom always felt like she's a nurse. So the bot like the bodily stuff, like from childhood, she was like, I knew what sex was when I was four. Like she was always so open. And so it's, I've actually never really thought of it too much until you asked me that question. Um, so I didn't have a lot of shame around that, but the mm -hmm. emotional stuff. Yeah. The emotional know, stuff. The yeah. emotional stuff was really. So if you've got the emotional stuff plus the physical stuff. Oh man. Then it's just oh, yeah. it's such a big mountain to climb. Yeah. But, I yeah. mean, I didn't know any, I didn't even know I was going to birth a placenta. Like there was just so much. I didn't know. Right? I was like highly, like I was indignant. I was offended that I had to do something else coming out. Like, yeah, right? but, but it's it? just, <laughs> I just, yeah, just more conversations. I know if you're listening to this podcast, you're, you're, um, you're already on a great path to figuring stuff out a lot more than I had when I was, and definitely more than our moms and our grandmas. Yeah. So, all right. Um, tell everybody where they can find your new book and just how they can connect with you, get more information. Absolutely. Yeah. So the book, um, it's available from Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, Walmart, all your indie, indie bookstores, pretty much wherever books are found. And then on my website, baileygaddis.com, it helps you link to all those places. And it's kind of the hub for everything about me and my work. Very cool. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me again. Like I said, this is super rare, but I just love, I love how open you are. I love just how candid and, and you have the information <laughs> that's needed. So yes, please, if you have, please find this 101. What, what if you'd found 102? Would you have just made it 102 answers or? What? Oh my God. I probably had like 150 and my publisher is like, you have to oh, <laughs> dumb publisher shorter. So maybe we'll do a second one because really yeah. like this stuff is not going to go away. I hope that our granddaughters are not like this book. You know how you read these, uh, how, how to be a good housewife articles from <laughs> 1950s and you just yeah. shudder and you're like, really, did they think this way? I oh, hope really. that your book is that irrelevant to our grandchildren, right? Ditto. Ditto. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that we're just, our granddaughters laugh about it and be like, yeah. oh, like, grandma was so backwards. I love that. So that's such a great point. Yes. Hopefully all the shame. So is everybody needs to read this book so it can become irrelevant. Totally. Eight, yes. Yes, please. <laughs> Good goals. <laughs> Author goals, right? Yeah, right. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much for joining me again. Thank you. This is awesome. Please visit us at birthcircle.com, join our Facebook groups, or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience.